You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. As we kind of launch into this community, and next week we're going to be introducing one of the organizations in the community that we're going to be partnering with. It's going to be awesome. Uh, That'll be next week. But kind of as a, a launching point, I want to talk to us today about um, our failure to go out into our community and to be the light that we are supposed to be. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. We are called to assemble and we are also called to disperse. We are His voice and we must not remain silent. So you have your Bibles open to the book of Esther. And I want us to give a little bit of a background to what the book of Esther is. The book of Esther is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Now you say, Pastor Scott, no it's not. It's in the middle, right before Job. Well, chronologically, it was actually the last book that was written. So if we had all of the books of the Bible numbered in the time that they were written, or in the order that they were written, uh, Esther would be right before the book of Matthew. It was the last book in the Hebrew Bible. And the story is set 100 years after the Babylonian exile. So you remember that the, the, the children of Israel were captured and brought into Babylon as, as exiles. And they were there for many years. And you all know about Ezra and Nehemiah, right? What did Ezra build? Nehemiah, what did they build? They built the wall. They went back and they built the wall. But not everyone, not all of the Jews, went back to uh, live there and build the wall. And so this story is about a Jewish community living in Susa. And Susa was the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. So that kind of helps us understand this story a little bit better. Here we have this massive Persian empire that we're going to see here in in Esther. And who were the Jews? Well, they were the immigrants. They were the lower class. Uh, They were the people who were looked down on. And so we're going to see, even though God is not even mentioned in this book, it's the only book of the Bible that God is not mentioned. We're going to see God's hand at work as God saves his people. Let's look at the early portion of Esther. The message this morning is going to come from chapter 4. And we're going to do a super, super fast uh, skim read through the first three chapters. In chapter 1, verse 3, we see in the third reign, third year of his reign, he gave a feast talking about uh, King Ahasuerus. And down in verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Here, this king, Ahasuerus, throws an 180-day party to show off the wealth and splendor of his nation. Now, we're going to learn in this story that this king, he was messed up. 
Uh, he had some real, real issues. And we're going to learn about Esther, the, the beautiful queen. And we're going to learn about her uncle, who was Mordecai. And we're going to learn about Haman, who was the enemy of the Jews that the king finally raised up to be the prime minister. But this, guy, this king was an absolute reprobate, a drunken man who used women as we would use objects. Uh, one a day, a different one a day. He'd never see that woman again. It's just terrible. Look down in verse 10. He commanded, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, the author here is pretty discreet, but you and me know what this actually means. Here's a party. Everyone's drunk. The king, in his drunkenness, says... Uh, go get the queen and have her bring, uh, have her come before all of us men so we can look at her beauty. I mean, this, this guy is a, a massive creep. And how many of you ladies would have said what Vashti said, which is, I'm good. How many of you ladies? That would have been you. Yeah, I, I, I don't care to strut in front of all of these drunken men. Uh, no, thank you. So the king becomes furious. All of his counselors, they say, Oh my goodness, King, if you let this go unpunished, all of the women in the, in, in the whole province, all the provinces, the whole empire, they're going to revolt against their husband. They're going to disrespect their husband. You've got to crack the whip. She's gone. She's not the king. She's not the queen anymore. And then what happens, it's almost as if this is a movie that isn't true. The king holds a beauty pageant, and the most beautiful woman in the land... Uh, she's the queen. That's exactly what he did. And so we notice in verse number 10 of chapter 2 that Esther hides her identity. And here's the question. Why did she hide her identity? Well, she wanted to win the beauty pageant. And she was a Jew. And so Mordecai, her uncle, says, Shh, don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. And I want us to realize the absolute craziness of this guy Mordecai. Now, I mean, he does some good in the chapter, but how many of you men would send your young niece or your daughter off to be the queen to this kind of maniac? Would you do that? Oh my goodness, I wouldn't. I'd say, no, you're staying right here at home. No, she's, Mordecai says, all right, hide your identity, go try to win the beauty pageant. We see in verse number 14, she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. This is talking about the different women that the, the king would have a relationship with. Every single day, the king would have a different relationship with a different woman and this woman, before she went before the king, would have to become purified and beautified. And then she would come in front of the king, he would have a relationship with her, and then she he would never see her again. A different woman, every day, for his whole life. This is how the king is using these women. It's crazy. In verse number 22, and this came to the... Not, excuse me, verse number 20, uh, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. And then we hear about how Mordecai 
is overhearing two guards that are plotting to kill the king. Esther wins the beauty pageant. Now she's queen. Now her uncle hears about two people that are plotting to kill the king. He goes to Esther. Esther brings it to the king. And Mordecai looks like a real good guy. We move on to chapter 3. And we've got this guy named Haman who's the, who is made the prime minister of all of the empire. And he is an enemy of the Jews. Everywhere he goes, everyone is commanded to bow down and to worship Haman. But Mordecai doesn't do it. And so Haman becomes angry. And he becomes angrier and angrier and angrier. And all of a sudden he decides we need to get rid of not only Haman, but we need to get rid of all the Jews. You know the story. Haman goes before the king and he says, All right, king, we've got this whole sect of society, these Jewish people, and they are refusing to bow down and worship you, the king. They are, they're living by their own set of laws. We need, to, we need to annihilate them. And the king says, Okay, let's do it. Let's get rid of them. Look at verse number 13 of chapter 3. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So we see that in this story, Esther and Mordecai use secrecy and her beauty to gain power and then when she gains the power she remain she continues to hide her identity i want us to note before we get into chapter four what we do not see in the bible is perfect saints who were faithful to the covenant but flawed humans that a faithful god saved as they turned to him Esther is the queen. A death sentence has been made for all of the Jews. And we pick up the story in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And here's the question we have to ask, why was the queen distressed? Does anybody have an idea? Yell it out at me. Because he was a Jew. You know my entire life I've thought that's why she was distressed. And as I begin to read this passage, studying for this sermon, I thought to myself, that is not at all why the queen was distressed. Well, let's look at it. Why was she distressed? The queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. Here's her uncle that's roaming the streets in sackcloth, making a fool out of himself. 
And she sends clothes down to him and says, take off that sackcloth. What are you doing? Well, he refuses the clothes. He says, no, I will not put on these normal clothes. I'm in mourning. I'm, 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 we're, we're about to be killed. Let's continue on. Verse 5, then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and notice the words here, to learn what it was and why it was. Let me read it for you in the New Living Translation. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. Esther has no idea about any kind of decree. Here her crazy uncle is wandering the streets making a fool out of himself. Get these clothes on and stop embarrassing me. Let's continue on in verse 6. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square, the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Here's what Esther says. She says, boy, this is bad news. All of my people are about to die, but she says, what can I do about it? I'm not allowed in front of the king, and we find out in the next verse that she hasn't been called in front of the king in 30 days. You say, how in the world has the queen not been called into the king in 30 days? Well, we already know that. Different woman, different day. 30 days. She hasn't even seen the king. She says, I can't go before the king because I'll die. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape and any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise, will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Here's what Mordecai said. He said, God's redemptive plan isn't going to get messed up. God's going to bring about his Messiah, but you're going to die. And God's going to use someone else to bring about the Messiah, you're going to die if you don't speak up. Well, now Esther is terrified. And Mordecai says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. 
and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him to do. Now we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that the king does hold out the golden scepter. She does reveal her identity as a Jew. She saves the Jewish people. Haman is killed instead of the Jews. And Esther delivers salvation for her people. I want to talk to us this morning about how Esther saved her people. And I want us to look at three things that Esther did to save her people. Number one, Esther empathized. She empathized. Empathy is the ability to understand and share, the underlined word there is share the feelings of another. One of the ladies in my small group, she told me, she said, Scott, sympathy is when someone looks down into a hole, sees the person that's fallen down in the hole, and feels bad for them. Empathy is when you jump into the hole and you feel bad with them. It is vitally important that Esther empathized with her people or she never would have gone before the king. You know, we understand that empathy is an important thing. You know who else understands that is political people. This last election, we had Trump versus Hillary. I don't know if you all were as amused by Trump versus Hillary as I was. Sometimes in the evening, I go home and I open my phone to Bleacher Report or to ESPN, and that's what brings me my entertainment. But during the election, I went and looked up Trump versus Hillary. It, it was comical. And I went on Fox News one day, and Fox News on the front page said... Hillary Clinton has not done blank in 21 years. Someone, if you know what she hasn't done in 21 years, yell it out. Does anybody know? Told the truth. I will not comment on that on this platform. Wow, thank you, John. No, she has not driven a car in 21 years. Now, I want to ask all of us, what was Fox News trying to do? They were trying to prove to their constituents, the people who go on Fox News, that Hillary was not, say it church, empathetic. Say it with me. She wasn't empathetic. How in the world is this person going to help you with your problems, average person, if she doesn't even know what your problems are? So then I would go on other news networks and I would see... Donald Trump was handed everything on a silver spoon. His dad gave him a million dollars, and he's basically rolled over and become a billionaire. And, and Donald Trump can't possibly help you with your problems because he's a billionaire who lives in a, a, a mansion and has resorts, and you can't trust him. He's not empathetic. If Esther had not left the palace, so to speak. 
she would not have been able to empathize with her people. The only way that Esther saved her people was to leave the palace and see that there was a problem. If she hadn't known there was a problem, she couldn't have empathized. But she saw the problem. She saw that they were going to be killed. She was still hesitant. But finally, Mordecai says, you've got to do something about it. And she empathized. Number two, she identified. When Esther finally did identify with her people, she simultaneously inherited the penalty that was owed to them. But she also ensured that whatever favor she gained from the king would belong to her people as well. I want to spend a few minutes of this message and talk a little bit about identification. Identification is an interesting subject and it goes both ways. Let's look at a picture of my family. So Chloe is seven, Kelsey's five, Kara in the middle is three, and Max is one, and my beautiful wife. I want to focus this morning on Kara. She's three. And those of you that have watched her in the nursery or been around her, ooh, she's a stinker. She is a stinker. I want us to imagine for a moment that I take Kara to the department store. And I'm not really the greatest dad. And here Kara goes wandering away. I lose track of where she is. I'm over here looking at this or that. And all of a sudden we hear shatter. Kara has gone over to the expensive vases. And she has knocked an extremely expensive vase on the floor and it has shattered into a million pieces. The attendant from the store is going to come up and kneel down next to Kara and someone yell out what she's going to say. Who's your dad? Why does the attendant want to identify her dad? Because... Her penalty is my penalty. I'm her father, and whatever she destroys, I pay for. Because she's my kid, I've got to pay for the vase. But I want us this morning to look at another picture. This is little Charlotte. Charlotte was also, just like my little Kara, Charlotte was born in May of 2015. They're the exact same age. But Charlotte is the daughter of the great Prince William of England and the Dutch of Cambridge. I mean, I just like the way that sounds. Dutch of Cambridge. Kate. Same department store. Little Charlotte wanders away from her dad and mom, and all of a sudden we hear, one attendant comes up to little Charlotte, gets on a knee, and says, say it with me, who's your dad? 
But as you can imagine, all of a sudden, attendants from everywhere are scampering over and pulling this woman off of Charlotte and saying, this is the prince's daughter. Oh my goodness, let's get some more vases for her to break. (laughs) Boy, it was an honor for you to break our vase. Thank you so much for breaking the vase. Because of the identification, the favor that the father had belonged to the child. You see, if Esther had never identified with her people, she could never have saved her people. But I want us to remember when she identified with her people, when Esther said, I'm a Jew, boom, she took their penalty, their condemnation. Their death sentence. You remember, there was a death date set. The Jews are dead. Esther says, I'm a Jew. Boom, she's dead. But any favor that she gains when she goes before the king belongs to her people. You see, Esther, she empathized. Secondly, she identified. Esther walked before the throne and stood in the face of death and said, Those are my people. Number three, Esther mediated. She went before the throne on behalf of those who were not even given access to the palace. Mediation is needed when one party isn't capable or able to defend themselves. Sometimes I will hear people say, Boy, this judicial system in America is really messed up. And any of you who have traveled abroad, you join me in a chuckle. Now, sure, we'd like the judicial system here to get better. But how many of you understand that around the world, there are countries where there is literally no justice? You go to Africa or you go to South America, or you go to Thailand, and what you find in Thailand is the only people who get justice are the rich people. And so the owner, uh, the, the, the owner of Mitsubishi, his son drives 150 miles an hour in a Mercedes and he kills a family of four. They find a Cambodian and they say the Cambodian did it, and now the son of the owner of Mitsubishi is off the hook. Hey, hey Thailand made New York Times. It happens all the time. I mean, there's countries in the world where they're not even pretending to be just. There's zero justice. You see, what these Jews needed is they needed someone on the inside. They had no access to the palace. They had no access to the king. They needed someone on the inside. But they didn't just need someone on the inside. They needed someone on the inside who was empathetic. They needed someone on the inside who was willing to identify with them. If Esther had not empathized with her people, she, would have, she, she never would have identified with them. If she had not identified with them, she would not have mediated on their behalf. And if she had not mediated on their behalf, the wrath of the king would have fallen on the Jews. 
She empathized. She identified. She mediated. Esther risked taking their condemnation. But by gaining the favor of the king, she then earned the favor for her people. Does this story sound familiar at all to you? Let's look at the screen. Hebrews chapter 2. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory and it was only right that he should make Jesus through his suffering a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Let's look further at verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of Of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. You know, in our story, you and I have a death sentence. The date has been marked. Because of our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. And Jesus Christ, the King of Heaven, left His palace because of the great love and empathy that the Father had. Jesus is the Esther of our story. He left the palace of Heaven because of the great love and empathy that the Father had for us. He identified with us who were sinners. Jesus walked into the department store and said, He's with me. She's, she's mine. He's, that's my child. He simultaneously took our condemnation. But Jesus didn't do it at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. Jesus didn't say, if I perish. Jesus said, when I perish. Then Jesus mediated on our behalf, taking his own blood to the throne of heaven where he satisfied God's justice, securing grace and favor for all those who will come to him by faith. That is the gospel. That is the good news. We are forgiven. Our death sentence has been lifted. I want to share a little bit of my testimony this morning before we close. I moved to Thailand and Christy and I started to learn the language. Hardest thing we've ever done. We learned the language and we began to talk to people in Thai. 
which, boy, is that gratifying. If you've ever learned a language to start using what you've practiced on the people who speak the language. These people couldn't speak to me except for I have this language, and I start talking to them. People were always intrigued when I could speak Thai because most of the white men who go to Thailand go for the wrong reasons. And the people who go for the wrong reasons don't learn the language. And so here's this white guy speaking in Thai. And I would have people everywhere I went and they would come up to me and they would say, what on earth are you doing here? Are you a businessman? I'd say, no, I, I'm a Christian teacher. And they would say, really? And then I would say, Have you ever heard the story of Jesus? And Kelsey, as you well know, they would look back at me and say, No, I've never heard the story of Jesus. Boy, you can't unexperience that. Here's people who have never heard the gospel. Man, Christy and I have got a couple of job offers here in America, and I just chuckle. These people have never heard the gospel. And I would go on to tell them the good news of Jesus. So I was there for five years, and then I came back to America... I'd walk up to someone and I'd say, hey, buddy, how you doing? What church do you go to? Oh, I go to this church over here. Oh, praise the Lord. They're born again. Hallelujah. Walk up to someone else. I'd say, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to this church over here. Oh, isn't that great? I'm so glad. I don't want to steal you from your church. My church is better, but I don't want to steal you from my church. And boy, I just walk on. And I finally, Brother Butch, I finally came to the conclusion that everyone here is saved. We should just call this the Bible Belt. I mean, this is just, these. all of these people are saved. And you know, 71% of Americans claim to be a Christian. But Arkansas, you've got that beat by far. Did you know that 82% of Arkansans, that's how you say that, by the way. I said Arkansians and people almost like jumped on me. Did you know that 82% of Arkansans claim to be a Christian? And here I'm studying in seminary to go back to Thailand where everyone's lost. And here I am in America where everyone's saved. So I start talking to people. And every time I would talk to someone about Jesus, I just got this feeling that they weren't born again. And Carolyn, I said, I got to do something about this. So I did. I made a little survey. And those of you in my small group and those of you who work with me, you know about my little survey. And I said, I'm going to find out. I'm going to do some research and I'm going to find out how many people in Thailand are lost. So here's the survey. It's real simple. It's a, a Google document. I can share this document with you and you can help me do the survey with other people. I've, been, I've had people all week long helping me with this. Number one, is there life after this one? That's a pretty easy one. You know what our Kansans say to that? Absolutely. Number two, is there a literal place called heaven and hell? Yep, absolutely. There's a literal place called heaven and hell. Most everyone gives that answer. 
Number three, if there is a heaven, will everyone go there? Now, here's where the answers start to split. I've got yes, no, or not sure. If there is a heaven, will everyone go there? Right now, after doing about 25 surveys, I'm split down the middle. Some people said everyone's going to go to heaven. Some people say, no, not everyone's going to go to heaven. Number four, how does one make it to heaven? Doing good, fulfilling a religious duty, not sure, or other. How does one make it to heaven? Doing good, fulfilling a religious duty, you're not sure, or other. Now, all of us in here who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and you know that Jesus Christ has paid our death sentence for us, and he lived the perfect life, he lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we deserved, and only by faith in Jesus Christ alone can we have eternal life, we would put other. 25 surveys, I've got three that have said, you have to trust Christ. I talked to a Baptist this week. I was driving down the, the road here. Is it, is it Albert Pike still when it's right here? And instead of doing the curve, I just kept going straight. And there's this big public school building. I don't even know what that building is. Across the street, they're having a barbecue. And I go and I said, hey, would you guys help me? I'm one of the pastors at Gospel Light. And I'm doing some research. Would you take a survey? Now, I'll tell you something about Arkansans. They love surveys. In Chicago, if I walked up to a stranger and said, can I do a survey with you, it wouldn't be good. Arkansans love it. They say, yes, let's, let, let me help you. And so right across from the public school building, I've got a Baptist, I've got a non-denom Christian, and I've got two that claim no religion. I said, this should be good. So I said, first of all, I was like, number one, is there life after this one? I got two yeses and two noes. Is there a literal place called heaven and hell? Two yeses, two noes. If there is a heaven, hypothetical for you two who don't believe there is, but if there is a heaven, will everyone go there? I got two yeses, two noes. How does one make it to heaven? And I thought, boy, this is going to be good because this Baptist here, she's going to be able to help me give the gospel to her, to her, you know, non-religious friends. All four of them said doing good. So I said, great, I'll check it, doing good. I said, now my survey's all done. I said, I'll put my phone away. But I said, I, I, I'm, I'm done with the survey, but I'm just a little intrigued and curious. Would you mind if I just asked you another question? And they said, yeah, do you want a hot dog? And I said, um, who, who is Jesus? And you won't believe what they said. All four of them, as if they were in some kind of ensemble quartet, at the same time said, the Son of God. And I said, well, that is awesome. I said, could I ask you why Jesus came to earth? And one of the girls who was a, non, a non-religious person, she said to me, well, he was an example for us. 
And I say, oh yeah, he was. Good, good answer. And here's the Baptist, and I just knew she was going to give the right answer. She said, to die for our sins. And I can't really explain it, but it's almost as if she went back into the corridors of her brain and she knew the answer she was supposed to give and it just came out to die for our sins. And I looked right at the sweet young lady, actually she was older, and I said, you believe Jesus came to die for our sins? She said, yeah. I said, now I'm a little puzzled because earlier you said we go to heaven by doing good now you're telling me Jesus came to die for our sins. I said, it kind of sounds like Jesus didn't need to make that trip. Kind of a waste of time. I said, if I can go to heaven by my own performance, by doing good, why did Jesus even need to come? And boy, she just stared at me. Her bottom jaw dropped and she said, I guess I never thought about it like Oh, but she's a Baptist, and we we know they're saved. My friends, I'm telling you this morning, we have got a mission field right here in our backyard. You have got neighbors that go to church. You have got co-workers who go to church. And unless their answer is through Christ alone, by faith alone, They're going to spend eternity apart from the Father. The death penalty that has been set, they'll receive it. And they'll spend forever in hell because they have not been forgiven. Right here in Hot Springs. Church, I got some good news for you. You and I hold the fate of other people in our hands. You say, wait, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Scott, that, that's, a, that's a hefty thing for you to say. You telling me that, that we can influence other people to believe or not believe? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the church says, Amen. For it is by believing in your heart that you were made right with God. You're not made right with God by stop doing bad and now doing good. You're made right with your God you're made, you're made right with God by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and i want to stop right there before we read verse 14 and tell us right now paul is about to give us a rhetorical question 
That means Paul knows that you already know the answer to this question, but he's still going to ask it because he wants to prove a point to us. Let's read these several questions that he gives us. Number one, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe him? How in the world is someone going to call on Jesus for salvation if they don't believe in Jesus? The answer is they can't. Okay, let's keep reading. And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? Let me ask you a question, church. The people in Thailand who have never heard about Jesus, can they believe in Jesus, yes or no? No, can't do it. So we already know the answer to this question. Paul's trying to make a point here. And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? The answer is they can't. If no one tells them about Jesus, they can't hear about Jesus and they can't believe in Jesus. Let's go on. And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. So here's what Paul is saying. If you don't share the gospel with your neighbor, your neighbor's going to go to hell. That's what he's saying. You and I have the incredible privilege to have an effect in God's redemptive plan. You and I have the opportunity to be the one to preach the gospel to the lost. And church... If we're not doing it, they're not going to hear the gospel. And if all you and I are doing... Now listen to this, because this is one where I am guilty of this just as much as anyone in the room. If all I'm doing is inviting people to church, and they say to me, I already have a church. Okay, have a good day. You and I have an opportunity... Over the next four months, as we emphasize our community to be a part in the redemptive plan of God to preach the gospel to the whole world, and it starts right here in our community. Right here. Remember the prayer that we prayed? We're supposed to be His voices, but we're silent. How shall they hear without a preacher? They won't. Man, church, I'm excited. I am so optimistic about our church right now. I've I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Pastor Capace lately. I got to take him to the airport this week. And Pastor Capace is on fire to get the gospel to this community. And, I, and, and I, I just want to beg you and plead you to see the need. If you are not aware that people around you are dying, it's because you're in your palace. That's plain and simple. 
And you've got people all around this city and they're running around in burlap and they're, they, they're hopeless and they don't have answers and they're looking for answers and they're trying to fix it themselves. They're trying to please God through their good works and boy, we come to church and we all hold hands and we sing, thank you, Jesus, which is important. But church, we're not called just to assemble. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to preach the good news of salvation. I want to close by just encouraging each and every one of you to open your heart and to allow the Holy Spirit of God to begin to convict you. That's what I want to ask you. And then I want to encourage you to start praying for ways that you can share the gospel with others. I had a lady in my small group last, uh, two weeks ago, and she said, uh, over here in, our, in the Truth Seekers class, she said, Pastor Scott, she's like, I've got a neighbor who really, I really feel convicted to, to give them the gospel. She's like, could you take one of the weeks here at our class and, and help me with that? And I did. And we will. And we're going to. And Pastor Capace has grand plans for our church to help us share the gospel with the lost community around us. But I want to encourage you this morning, open your heart and allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict you and come out of your palace. The worship team's going to come. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God.